Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a balmy summer's day, not a cloud in the sky, in Lawton Vale, in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. What, what a perfect day, Mark. What a perfect day. It's absolutely sweltering. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. It is already almost unbearable. It's a heat wave. Uh, it's a heat wave. I'm actually in the uh, pub car park at Kirkstall Inn and I'm looking at Grassmore End and I can just see through the gap to Great Gable. Tantalising when you can see that far. And the heather is clinging to the craggy edges all the way up there. It's marvellous. The heather, of course, pretty much at its beautiful pink peak at this time of year, isn't it? looking wonderful we're looking up melbrook as well there mm. i love this valley and this is only the second time we've been here outrageous of all the lake district valleys this is probably well no they're all beautiful but this is absolutely exquisite you were gonna say this was probably my favorite but you didn't you couldn't I, allow oh, yourself no to no say I, I couldn't do that i would just say because well lakeland is lakeland isn't it <laughs> We're by the Kirkstall Inn, home of Lowswater Gold. We are just above Lowswater. And the reason we're here today, Mark, is actually is quite lucky. It gives us a chance to get into the shady woods today. <laughs> we're talking about woodlands and we're talking about our responses to trees. We're going to rewind in time to talk about some of the debates historically about planting and of course they have resonance now we walked with lee schofield a few months ago didn't we and talked about the planting up at wild horsewater there which isn't uniformly popular but these kind of conversations have been going on for centuries and one of the particular early debates um, was uh, william wordsworth who had a great interest in this indeed and when you come to a place like lowswater and this lawton vale you can see there's lots of pockets of really old woodland, but there's also a diversity of woodland. And of course, the name Lowswater itself means the leafy lake. Wainwright, in his Northwestern Fells, comments very specifically and says the folk of Lawton Vale love their trees. He thought you could see it written into the landscape. Um, we've got our guest today. Um, who is our guest, Mark? Dr. Anna Burton from University of Derby, who's specialised on this focus on cultural and uh, literary association from the Romantic Age onwards, the interplay of trees and how people responded to them. Fabulous. Well, look, I can see Anna over there just by the pub. A little bit early for all of us to go in there, but I think we've uh, promised ourselves at least an ice cream or something later. Let's go and meet Anna and then let's head off to Lowswater. Well, we're at Maggie's Bridge. Uh, we've come from the pub, and I'm looking at Culling Knot, 
with Homewood directly in front of me, looking southwest, I should say, with the famous eye of the pheasant. And the pheasant, of course, was consciously created, like many things like heartwood, you might say, in the Loon Gorge, where you've got that very striking feature there. When somebody's planting a, a wood, they like to leave some creative element to it. And this one, when you're up on low fell, you can look down on it and the multicoloured trees give the pheasant a very distinct look. You've got the head and the eye. So it's quite a feature. You've got the babbling back beside us. And I'm in the company of Dr. Anna Burton. How gorgeous to see you, Anna. Can you tell us where you come from and what led you into your career and study, academic study of trees? Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm Anna. I'm from the University of Derby. I'm a lecturer in English literature there. But I'm actually from Liverpool. That's where I sort of live at the moment and where I did my PhD. I'm interested in the lakes because, as a child, my parents would bring me up here repeatedly. Uh, me and my you sisters. You lucky girl, you lucky um, girl. And we used to spend holidays in particular at Barrow House in Keswick, which used to be a YHA, I think, in the 90s. So a lot of walking as a child, and that's cultivated my interest in the lakes. I'm currently undertaking a research fellowship at Wordsworth Grassmere around Dove Cottage. I am the British Association for Romantic Studies and Wordsworth Trust Fellow at the moment. And I'm there researching uh, Wordsworth and tree planting and his sort of interest in trees. Absolutely fabulous. Well, we've got a feel for it in this setting. Trees mean a lot. So where are we heading to to give us our sense of our arboreal roots here? (laughs) Okay, so we're going to follow a track up through Hynook Farm and to the base of Carling Knot and where we meet the plantation or homewood along the back of the wood. Round the corner, though, where we'll see some great tree mountaineers, uh, which I can go into a little bit more detail about that later, and then back down through the wood itself and round and back by Lowest Water. Fabulous. I I imagine home force will not be a force. Maybe not today. It might be a trickle. (laughs) Yes, Okay. Well, we'll make our efforts across this meadow, which has been cut for a late hay crop. Well, we come up through High Nook Farm and I'm looking back towards Low Fell and Darling Fell and the heather upon Culling Knot. And over to my left, I can see uh, Melbrecht, North Top, Grassmore, Grassmore End and White Side. And below us are trees. That's the great abundance in this vale. We're going to rewind ourselves back to the 18th century Could you remind us what was going on at that time in this sort of setting? Yeah, so I'm looking at literature from roughly around the 1780s into the 1830s, and that's set in a backdrop of real radical change, of immense industrialisation at the time. There were the parliamentary enclosures as well, which meant a lot of people from rural areas were then gravitating towards urban locations too, so moving out of the countryside into the city. The key figures, Wordsworth, Coleridge, uh, William Blake... And then the subsequent three poets after that, Percy Shelley, John Keats and Byron. In terms of the literature of that time as well, for Wordsworth in particular, it's moving beyond the human-centred world, beyond the social and economic concerns of the period. And it's really literature that's dealing with concerns and ideas of nature, of memory, of sentiment, feeling and mortality. A significant text, uh, romantic text, 
at this time is Wordsworth and Coleridge's The Lyrical Ballads, which was published at the very end of the 18th century and then in 1800, a second edition. And that was really trying to deal with incidents and situations from the common life. Wordsworth perceived that those common people that he was dealing with in that text were sort of closer to nature and the natural world and in that we get a lot of trees in particular so in the lyrical ballads there are poems like the thorn on a thorn tree on a crag nutting uh, about hazel trees um, and also the oak and the broom as well and these poems in the in the sort of second edition if you go back into the 1700s and earlier trees were just seen as a practical economic entity Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. I think they were used for economic purposes. You've got someone like John Evelyn in the 17th century writing silver, encouraging landowners to plant trees because they were massively afraid of deforestation across the country. And he refers to the kind of wooden walls of the nation. It's national pride or oak trees and things like that. But certainly trees would be, before this time, being cut down for timber, for economic purposes. But really in the 18th and 19th centuries, we get a development of the picturesque aesthetic, planting trees for ornamental and aesthetic purposes. A contemporary of Wordsworth, William Green, um, who was actually a painter and illustrator who's based in Ambleside. And he wrote a guidebook too. And in that, he goes on about planting in the lakes quite a lot. And he talks about this preference for landowners of the time planting with ornament and utility that go hand in hand. So it's this planting for aesthetic, picturesque purposes, but at the same time using timber for economic ones as well. To be a good tree planter and a good landowner is to plant for both of those reasons and get value out of those trees, both in picturesque terms and economic ones. I suppose you could go back to people like Capability Brown, who came from Northumberland, and Humphrey Repton. These were people who were employed by the great estates to make great landscape parks. How does that fit in in time? Yeah, so those sort of landscape gardeners come before Wordsworth's around the time of Repton, actually, but um, slightly before, and they're interested in uh, landscape gardening in accordance with a kind of picturesque naturalism. And what I mean by that was not planting in sort of formal lines, planting in accordance more with what it might look like in the natural landscape. Geography. Yeah, so making it look more naturally planted than formally planted that you might have seen beforehand in neoclassical gardens in Versailles, for instance, where everything's sort of laid out quite formally. England at the time on these estates with Brown and Repton, who was interested in kind of planting clumps of trees in certain forms. And that influenced uh, the writings of William Gilpin as well. And Gilpin, of course, did tour the lakes and wrote his observations on uh, Cumberland and Westmoreland. And he also wrote Remarks on Forest Scenery in 1794, which is based in the New Forest. So he had a kind of immense interest in trees in the landscape and as a picturesque component too. That was less in terms of gardening for Gilpin, but in terms of getting out into the landscape and viewing a scene and how trees fit into that with mountains and bodies of water as well. Because a lot of the early designs like for Blenheim Palace, and they didn't have mountains as a backdrop. No, not at but all. But they used the trees to give that elevation. Yeah, and for Repton as well, he had these things called red books. So he would present a landowner with a before and after of what their landscape would look like. So there's a picture of a garden and um, it used to have a fence and you could see the pub and a little old man with an eye patch and a cane sort of stood behind it. That sounds like me. (laughs) (laughs) And then the sort of after would be screened with trees so you can't see any of that. You're just seeing the bounds of your own estate and, and sort of keeping yourself contained in that. Well, that's set the scene for the period and the poets we're going to be talking about. It's such a gorgeous day. I just want to walk and share some more 
conversation with you. We made a bit of an effort to come up the valley under Black Crag on uh, Gavel Fell. And we're below the very steep slopes of Culling Knot. And there's some gorse in bloom here, but whenever is gorse not in bloom. Uh, and there's a one tree there, so that's pretty modest in context of what we're talking about. We go back to Wordsworth, that's where we need to get to. He planted trees as well, didn't he? Yeah, he was a really keen tree planter, actually. And, and when him and Dorothy moved to Dove Cottage in Grasmere in 1799, they made an effort to develop the orchard that was at the back of the cottage, planting fruit trees. There's some yew trees as well at the front, which we possibly think were planted by Wordsworth, a Scots pine too. Um, but it's hard to say whether they were definitely planted by him at the current moment because they're organic things rather than buildings. So we can only suggest that he planted them by... You have to um, cut them down and look at the rings. Possibly that might be an indication, yeah. Um, <laughs> Not but, recommended. But he was really interested in planting trees and he planted trees at Allen Bank, which is where he lived after Dove Cottage. So they moved there briefly in 1808. And then subsequently after that, they moved to Rydal Mount, uh, a little bit further down from Dove Cottage itself in 1813. In terms of planting in his guide, the fifth edition was in 1835. He talks about planting in that and uh, his guidance for planting really. And he says, let the images of nature be your guide. So he mm -hmm. wanted trees planted again to look natural, to look like they had a part in the landscape to sort of blend in. But he was also consulted on the planting of trees too. So he was consulted by George Beaumont to plant some yew trees in St Oswald's Church in Grasmere as well. He planted a stone pine in Harriet Martineau's garden, the Knoll, near yeah. Ramble She sort there. of requested that he plant some trees and he picked a stone pine. And then he got this reputation as a tree planter because his son-in-law, Edward Quillinan... Yeah, Dora's um, husband. Yeah, Dora's husband. He wrote a poem called Fieldfoot Cedar, planted by William Wordsworth. And he sort of talks about this cedar that Wordsworth planted. Though this cedar, you're very small in comparison to the big cedars next to you, you've got this massive stature because you've been planted by a Wordsworthy in hand. So though you're smaller and you will get to that height... The significant planter is Wordsworth, and that's had an impact on the cultural associations and significance of that tree. So we have a, a bit of an idea that uh, Wordsworth was developing a knowledge of trees. Where do you think he gathered that from? In the collection at Dove Cottage, there's a book called A Treatise on Planting by an author called Samuel Hayes. And that was published at the very end of the 18th century. It's got very practical and detailed knowledge about planting trees, transplanting trees in different soils, when to do it, how to do it, preparing the soil. There's a sense that if he did read this book, and we possibly can assume he did because it's in his collection, that he had a really sort of intimate and technical knowledge of planting trees. Um, and this is possibly why he was roped in to plant all these trees by his friends. We have an appreciation that over the centuries, tree cover has diminished. Was Wordsworth himself aware of the reasons? Yes, yeah, so Wordsworth was certainly conscious of living in a landscape which was, I suppose, less heavily forested. So he talks about, in his guide, previous woodscapes of the Lake District, he talks about this anecdote about hearing from local people that a squirrel could travel from Withburn Chapel to Keswick without alighting from the ground. So that gives an indication of, in the historical past, that there were more trees in the Lake District than when Wordsworth was living there. In the guide as well, he talks about the scattered 
presence of trees scattered across the fells and then the remaining coppices, man-made cultivated spaces as well. So it's very much this idea of man having an influence on shaping woodscapes on the fells. And that's as a result of felling for timber from like when the Norse arrived in the real sort of historic past and onwards from that. The economics of wool meant there were ever more sheep. There's a lot of shepherds in Wordsworth's poetry as well. So I think Wordsworth is very much conscious of the impact of browsing on changing landscape and on the impact of trees on the fells in particular. I don't think he sort of lays any blame at the feet of the farmers, as it were, but he's, he's definitely aware of it in his guide. There's some indications that that's part and parcel of why there's less trees. But it's really just the hand of man for a variety of reasons, mm. having an impact on how many trees there are. Well, we'll head on along this lovely, lovely track, which gives us a wonderful bell view across the fells, across Lawton Vale to Grassmoor and Whiteside and so forth. We'll get closer to Homewood and talk about the larch tree. We reached the ultimate tip of home wood, the first element of it, and, and the view from here actually, well, it's marvellous. You can see High Style and Red Pike, back to Hencombe and Gavel Pike, just see the top of Grassmoor. But we are intimate with these trees, and this is before we get to that large tree I mentioned a moment ago. <laughs> We've come upon some trees here, Scotch pines. And now, Wordsworth mentioned the native trees of the Lake District in his early writings. Yeah, so in his guide he talks about the native trees that were there at the time he was writing and he says, The woods consist chiefly of oak, ash and birch and here and there witch elm with underwood of hazel, the white and blackthorn and hollies. In moist places alders and willows abound and use among the rocks. Formerly the whole country must have been covered with wood to a great height up to the mountains where Scotch firs must have grown in great profusion, as they do in the northern part of Scotland today. But not one of these old inhabitants has existed, perhaps, for some hundreds of years. And here we are, standing by a little stand of them. The oak was Wordsworth's favourite tree, and after that it was the Scots pie. Wordsworth also really liked the yew, of course. We've got uh, the poem Yew Trees with the fraternal fold, Borrowdale yews. I think he really valued their longevity and their ability to live to such a sort of scale of time that humans can't do. The fact that they accumulate rings of human history as well. Um, so he really liked the longevity of those. Uh, Dorothy was a real fan of, of birch trees and so was Coleridge too. Coleridge, in his notebooks, he writes about seeing a birch that had bark like a rhinoceros that had been rolling in mud and that was kind of what the bark of the birch tree looked like. So Dorothy and Coleridge really liked birches. Well, we're heading towards the promised larch. How much further is this, you think, uh, Anna? Not too far. It's just a little bit further down this plantation here and we'll start to see some larches appearing on the right. Well, we're beside the Scots Pines uh, and the bounding wall and the steep slope of Carling Knot with the bracken showing its uh, earliest signs of autumn. We've come over the brow through a gate, uh, started a little bit of a descent, uh, the clear slope of Burnbank Fell with some heather dotted across it. Uh, but we've actually come to the key thing. Apart from the fact that I can see Scotland, which is rather, rather special and always a key thing in my life, uh, we come by the larch trees. Now, where do they fit in this story, Anna? 
Wordsworth really didn't like larch trees at all. Um, in his guide, he refers to them as a spiky tree that causes deformity in masses and great injury to the landscape. Ooh. Critics have interpreted that. They refer to it as eco-xenophobic, this fear of non-native species superseding native species. Wordsworth critics have interpreted it that way, but also critics have perceived his comments to be proto-ecological, you know, conscious of the ecology of the Lake District and the kinds of trees we should be finding here mm-hmm. um, as well. So he really didn't like the larch at all. One of the specific reasons we are here at Homewood is a definite link with Wordsworth. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Homewood was owned by a Leeds flax spinner and MP named John Marshall. He owned a lot of land in the Lake District, um, around here, around Lowswater, Buttermere uh, and Crummock Water. The family at least owned about 6,000 acres in the Lake's up to the 1840s, so they owned a lot of land. The start of the 19th century, Marshall bought this area and wanted to plant trees in Homewood. And there's evidence in letters between Wordsworth and Marshall. So the Wordsworth and Marshalls were family friends. Dorothy had a school friend, Jane Pollard, who married John Marshall. So the two families were friends. Wordsworth and Marshall corresponded. And Marshall wrote about going to the Duke of Athol's estate in Scotland and how he had planted masses and masses of trees but had planted larch on his higher land and broadleaf specimens further down. The larch were more favourable on higher ground and you were keeping lower ground for these kind of native species. And that's something that then gets an echo in the guide. You can certainly see that in Wordsworth's writing too, having an influence on him because he writes about if you're going to have the larch at all, have it on higher ground where it can be one of these kind of windswept forms that I was talking about a bit earlier, shaped by the Lake District, shaped on the fells more so than, than lower down. He also argues that lower down, the larch is more subject to insects and blight, so it won't thrive as well lower down. Um, So there's this conversation between Wordsworth and Marshall about the larch tree through the correspondence. And Wordsworth actually visited Marshall's land around here, visited Homewood um, and land in Buttermere and Crummet Water that Marshall owned a three-day trip where they kind of consulted on on Marshall's planting and there's an indication that he wanted to plant native trees that would be both profitable and ornamental. That's what Marshall did, both larch higher up the fell, much like the Duke of Athol, and then broadleaf specimens further down. Now, Homewood has been replanted subsequently since Wordsworth and, and Marshall's time, but you can still see evidence of that. So when you sort of go down through the wood itself, it's larch and fir near the top at the higher point. And then when you get down nearer to Lowe's water, it's many more sort of deciduous specimens. So there's a sense it sort of retained the shape that Marshall planted it in back in the 19th century. We're going to go a little bit further uh, down towards Homebag and we'll talk a little bit about a tree that's very close to my heart, the rowan. Well, we come close to home back above the wood, the continuing track contours on towards the west. I'm looking up towards Burnbank Fell, a great sweep of fell with the odd tree on it, including the rowan tree. 
So the rowan tree is one that's often found in the lakes back in the late 18th, early 19th century. There's evidence of writers thinking of it as a northern tree. So in his remarks on forest scenery, William Gilpin describes it as inured to cold and rugged scenes. It's the hardy inhabitant of the northern parts of this island. And then in her Sylvan Sketches, Elizabeth Kent says, few persons, even of the inhabitants of London, are entirely unacquainted with the mountain ash. Only those who have travelled northwards, we are told, have seen it in all its beauty. So it's this sense that we see the rowan or the mountain ash, it's multiple names, at its best in these northern climes. And it's often found up on the fells in the Lake District, often in the notebooks of Samuel Taylor Coleridge when he's writing about his travels up and down the fells on Blencathra. He notes a couple of rowans um, and Harriet Martineau as well. She mentions them when she's out on the fells. They're kind of way markers almost when there's no path to follow your way up and down the fell. And there's also a, a book published in 1885, so a lot later here, written by J.G. Baker called The Flora of the English Lake District. And in that, he defines the different zones on the fells at which trees appear. Zone one is from sea level to 900 feet. And then zone two is 900 feet to 1,800 feet. Most trees in the lakes are found between zone one and two, so up to 1,800 feet. The only real exceptions to that, he says, are the rowan and the juniper. It was the rowan and the juniper that were seen to be these trees that you see possibly at the best, really, up high on the fells, because lower down in the valleys, they're part of like an intermixture, aren't they, with other trees? Interestingly, the one rowan tree we can see close to us is growing out of a wall and it spears out at an angle. Presumably that was because it uh, both sought light, but it also was protected against the sheep grazing it. So it had a growth and it's kept growing out. It's a defiant tree that knows how to survive in this upland landscape, as you suggest. Yeah. Presumably it's grown there because of birds droppings, you know, it's, it's seeded itself there and they can grow in quite shallow soil. It's seeded and succeeded. Yeah. Now looking upon the slopes of Burnbank Fell, I see there are a few individual trees which hark back in my memory to John Muir, the founder of the concept of national parks in America. On the bottom of the fell here, there's some escaped larch, I think, from Homewood. They've sort of escaped and, and escaping up onto Burnbank Fell. John Muir, in 1869, so later than Wordsworth and the Romantics, coined the term tree mountaineer. And he used that to describe a juniper, actually, in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. He describes it as being almost immortal, geological in how it's kind of gripped into the rock. He doesn't ever think that it will die. He thinks it'll be there forever. It's given this godlike associations for Muir because it's transfixed with the rocks in that mountain range. And there's a number of other trees in his journals that he mentions and describes in the same way. In Wordsworth's Guide, we see a precursor to this idea of the tree mountaineer, the tree that goes up above and beyond these zones, like zone one and two that I was talking about, up onto the fells. In Wordsworth's Guide, he refers to trees climbing up the horizon up onto the fells and they're these hardy inhabitants that thrive and exist. They've got to be pretty hardy to exist on the windswept fells up there. So I think Wordsworth is a precursor to that idea that we get in Muir's writings later on. Only he describes them as tree climbers rather than tree mountaineers, but I quite like the term tree mountaineer. It just sort of encapsulates it a little bit more. Yeah, indeed. Uh, looking at the highest larch there, sitting up there, proud as punch, that the holly in Mosedale, which... Uh, stands alone 
uh, defiant uh, against the elements. It's wonderful. Uh, if I come back again, uh, I'll come back as one of these tree mountaineers. We've come down through the canopy, down a, quite a narrow path that's brought us down onto a track we've turned left. And we're in the broadleaf trees now. On a day like today, this is absolutely heaven. It's so shady. And we come by Homebeck and Home Force, which, despite the comparative shortage of water, is spouting a beautiful mare's tail fall. You can see it coming down, graciously down the slope and into the trees, which brings me to the obvious question, Anna. What is it about trees that gives you the buzz? When I was younger, when me and my sisters were born, my mum and dad planted a tree in the garden for each of us. And mine was a mountain ash. Aha. So and my sisters, I think, had two apple trees, if I can remember correctly. So I think I've had a fascination with trees since then. And my parents always taught me, like, walking in woodland, that kind of thing. And that's influenced my interest in terms of my academic research as well. And I'm really interested in kind of building that up to the present moment, thinking about trees and tree planting in the lakes more broadly in the current moment where we're thinking about planting trees on farmland, planting trees for forestry and keeping trees for picturesque aesthetic reasons as well and how those reasons and roles of trees intersect and, and sometimes, you know, are in tension with one another, in, at least in cultural terms. Now, you've gleaned from me that I have a great passion for the rowan tree and that's because my youngest grandson is rowan have you a, a favorite tree i think i'd have to agree with you i think my favorite is is a rowan wow um, yeah definitely and particularly ones that you can find on the fells or one growing out of a wall like the one we saw up there yeah yeah they're, they're attractive and the the berries look lovely mm. and the birds love them in the autumn i really like the shape of the leaves and the berries but I really like this anecdote as well from Dorothy Wordsworth's journal about uh, Coleridge coming over from Grisdale one day. There was a furious wind. He had a branch of mountain ash and was attacked by a cow. <laughs> so I'm interested in knowing what, you know, why he had that branch of mountain ash because obviously there's all these kind of folkloric associations around the Rowan too. It seemed to be a protector against witchcraft and things like that. I do wonder whether Coleridge was sort of buying into that. Yeah. Um, a little bit there, but yeah, that's just an anecdote I quite well, like. Wow, it's such a lovely, cool space. Uh, and there's hardly a breath of wind, but I would get down to see Lowswolf itself. I've seen little glimpses of it, and I thought I saw two swans down there. We'll go and see if we find any bird life down on the lake. Wow, 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 this is absolutely wonderful. We've exited Homewood and we're sitting on the shore of Lowswater. And you can see why the lake has got its name Lowswater, which means the leafy lake. Because all along the flanks of the lake here on our left are trees that bow right into the water. And the same on the far shore. And it rises up onto Darling Fell, which has nothing to do with Oh my darling, it actually is deerling, the deer heather. There's little bits of traces of heather there. There's a good deal on low fell. And of course, coming round, you can see Whiteside and Grassmoor. 
on their craggy slopes, they've got lots of heather. There's a light aircraft going over. But what we're coming to is the quick-fire questions. Anna, what was your first Lakeland memory? I think it'd have to be when I was going to Barrow House with my family. To be honest, I always wanted to go into Woolies to, to spend my pocket money in Keswick, so and that's not really a fell or anything, is it? But certainly around Derwent and, and around that youth hostel. Have you a favourite fell? Loughrig. It's such a varied walk because you can go to the caves as well. Mm. And I actually prefer, I think, like the lower fells in the lakes. I think you get a better view than a... Well, it's a different view, isn't it, than, mm. than off one of the high fells, but... I do really like Loughrig and the kind of view of Grasmere from up there, definitely. And lots more trees. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's a good one. Wainwright or Wordsworth? See, I am ticking off the Wainwrights, but I'd have to go with Wordsworth, I'm afraid. Have you a favourite view? Um, I really like the view from the Langdale Valley when you look up to like the pike. And, and the band, particularly in the evening, especially at a Stickle Barn or somewhere like that, having a drink. Yeah, good spot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's magical. Uh, yeah. There's something charismatic about that setting, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Um, if you were to take us on a particularly memorable walk, where would you lead us? When I was a lot younger, my mum and dad sort of did have to drag me up the fells a little bit. And one day when we were staying in Langdale, actually, my mum said to me, if you do crinkle crags with us, I'll buy you a guinea pig. So she, <laughs> she was bartering to have a nice walk in the sun with me because um, I didn't want to be there that day. Um, obviously, my attitude to the lakes has changed now, but back, back when I was young, I didn't want to be there. So my mum said, okay, you'll get, you get that guinea pig you were after for so long. So, well, um, <laughs> well, we, Dave has promised us an ice cream, hasn't he? Right, so that's so today's that's, uh, a, that's our guinea pig for today. <laughs> did you actually get a guinea pig? Did I did. Be... My mum sort of held on to her end of the bargain. I got, it, it was a very small guinea pig. I called him Cookie. He was quite miserable and he had an extra toe on one of his feet oh, yeah, that he you. shouldn't have had, apparently. So. No, dear. <laughs> Have you a favourite season in the year in Lakeland? It's got to be awesome, hasn't it, with the trees? It's awesome, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a moment in Lakeland history that you'd like to be able to return to? Maybe when the Wordsworths were moving into Dove Cottage, what that would have been like at the time, mm. um, so very end of the 18th century. Mm. Or even when Beatrix Potter moved up to the Lake District and she moved into her farm for the first time, what that would be like, I think. Yes. Uh, have you a Cumbrian... Heroine or hero, dead or alive? I'm torn between Dorothy Wordsworth and Harriet Martineau. I think I admire their spirit and their ability to walk for hours and days on end. One of those two. Ah, I find it staggering when I appreciate where they went. They kept going. Yeah. Also, the, I just think what walking boots they must have had. <laughs> Because I remember Dove Cottage had an exhibition and you saw it and they were just like these thin leather things. All the Gore-Tex we have now, they couldn't dream of. No, but they had tremendous drive. Have you a favourite pub in Lakeland? Yeah, probably the Golden Rule in Ambleside or the Wainwright in Keswick. Well, you see Sorry, my... I'm not picking one here, am I? No, I'm, I'm talking yeah, between two. two and everything. You see my drawings on the wall in the Wainwright. <laughs> but oh, really? The, yeah, but the Golden Rules is a classic. Yeah. Have you afraid for Lakeland food? The old Keswickian chippy. Oh. Fish and chips from the old Keswickian. Oh. Have you a favourite book that you would take to a desert island relating to the Lake District? Dorothy Wordsworth's journal, I think. 
There's still lots to be delved into. In yeah, there. a different perspective on the lakes than, you know, William Wordsworth was given. It's, it's a sort of very intimate and personal view that you get in that diary. If you were the Prime Minister for the day, <laughs> and the job's up for grabs at the moment, um, is there one thing you would do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria and the lakes? Plant more broadleaf and deciduous trees, but also plant trees... In, in a way that sort of works for all sorts of walks of life. So it works on farmland, it, it's picturesque, it has many different purposes. And I know there's like a lot of rewilding happening at the moment in, you know, Ennerdale and Horswater, more of that, I suppose, but obviously working with the land as well, not just rewilding everything, retaining the landscape and keeping the herdy sheep too. I think they should, they should stay. <laughs> well, James Rebanks and Beatrix Potter will be very pleased with that idea. Yeah. What would be your perfect Lakeland day. Mind you, I think today's perfect. But... Yeah, um, it would no doubt be an autumn day doing something like Walla Crag and then ending up in the Wainwright and the old Keswickian afterwards. Yeah, you, <laughs> All that. my answers are tying together here. <laughs> Johnny's End back at the Cug style in in the churchyard of St Bartholomew's, the joint parish of Buttermere and Lowswater. A uh, fabulous wonder mark. We didn't go for too far, so that was three miles at most. But a, a little bit of fell, a beautiful terrace route, and wandering in the woods. Oh, fabulous! And Anna was such a star. We learnt something of of the, how people in the past have related to the trees. And we continue to, to this day, this is a marvellous thing to walk through home wood and see that diversity in there. And that beautiful Mm. waterfall, gorgeous. I love that waterfall. It's got to be one of the perfect woodland waterfalls in the lakes. I mean, I can't think of a better one, can you? Mm. No, you can sit by that and just watch it. I I was expecting it to be dry, but no, there was a nice spout. No, you've had plenty of water, really. All kinds of interesting things that came out of the podcast as well how our appreciation of trees in the landscape have changed and that kind of economic value of old through to that kind of amenity, aesthetic value. And, of course, that same tension still exists today. Mm, It does. And I have to say, in terms of coming back here, when was the last time I was here? Uh, Earlier this year, a very wet, miserable day, but chalk and cheese, it's a perfect day, isn't it? I mean, it is warm, but there's a gorgeous breeze going and... The views, 360 views in this valley are always superlative. Absolutely. Just being here is just divine. Okay, Mark, some housekeeping. Um, This is episode number... 86. 86. I said the last one was 86. You did, because... But again, I had a cough at the time. You had something like a cough. Yeah, but it it didn't amount to anything, thank goodness. Uh, 86 for all previous 85 episodes www.countrystride.co.uk We're on social media. Yeah, at Facebook and Twitter at Countrystride One. Yeah, I mean we put up lots of things there, including the maps for the walks that we use and some of your linescapes as well, don't we? And lovely photos from the walk if you want to put some uh, photos to the audio. Uh, so by all means do check out particularly the Twitter feed. If you like what we do and you would like to support us, there are three ways to do that. You can uh, 
Buy one of our guidebooks. There are four in the range so far. You can get them at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can tell your friends and family who like the lakes and who like podcasts. The more people who listen, the higher we climb those algorithms. Uh, And thirdly, we have a Patreon account. Patreon allows you to support us for as little as £2 a month. Um, And you can find that link on our website as well. And we've got a few people to thank uh, this fortnight. We've got Baz Green, James Smith, Dave Wally... Jeff Appleyard, Simon Box, Jane Martin, Christine Knowles, and Ollie Brown. Thank you all so much for supporting us. Um, We don't make a huge amount, but what we do get allows us to uh, host the website and contribute towards some of the uh, increasingly expensive petrol to make the podcast. So we're saying goodbye from this most beautiful of valleys from Lawton Vale and see you on the next country strong.